0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 179. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and
0: economist. Now, here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today, we're going to be talking with Nick Watts, who has a very interesting story. Nick's journey was he was at divinity school, working on his master's thesis, and he wanted to seek out what does the Bible say about taxation, right? So, you know, like giving advice to political officials to say, hey, what's the the biblically sound way to think about how you're going to tax your citizens? And he ended up with the radical conclusion that the Bible teaches not only that taxation is theft, which is sort of a libertarian slogan that's been going around for the last few years, but in fact, Nick goes further and says the Bible teaches that taxation is in fact slavery. And so his book that we'll be discussing is called Taxation is Slavery, The Biblical Case for Libertarian Politics. I want to just mention, even if you're not religiously inclined, I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode that we talk about things like what was slavery like in the ancient world, things like that that I think you're going to enjoy even if you are not a believer yourself. So just as far as some of the official bio, Nick Watts completed a Master of Divinity degree at Queensland Theological College in Brisbane, Australia. While studying, he became interested in Christian approaches to politics. He decided to write his master's thesis on biblical principles for how a Christian politician should go about evaluating tax policy. And then, as I say, the rest is history. But again, I want to stress what's really interesting about this, and Nick will elaborate in the conversation we're about to go into here, that... He didn't go into this project as a Rothbardian. He went in, as he puts it, sort of like a, someone in the same neighborhood as Ted Cruz or Ben Shapiro in terms of their political views. And he came out the other side as a Rothbardian type. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Nick Watts. Well, Nick, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Bob. Great to be here. So obviously we're going to focus on the content of your, uh, your book. But can you just briefly give a little bit of background, just so the listeners have an idea of you know who you are and what you're, where you're coming from?
1: Yeah. So as it pertains to the book, I started Bible college in 2016. I went through to 2018, and I had to do a master's project for the end of that degree. And I went into it uh, with some interest in kind of the intersection of Christianity and politics. And I decided taxes seemed like a really interesting question because it seemed really nuanced. So there were things I thought were seemingly obvious uh, that, you know, Christian politicians should be for or against. But, mm-hmm. you know, where should the tax level be? That seemed like you, know, you could dial it to a really, really fine level of detail. So how would you work that out or be a biblical principle? And I thought if I could answer that, I'd probably get some fundamental principles to answer just about all the other questions that a Christian politician might ask. So I'll write a, write a project on that. And I went into it as kind of a like a Ted Cruz, Stephen Crowder, Ben Shapiro type of conservative. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing all the reading, and by the time I was a month or two into the reading, I was like, oh, dear, I think I'm an ANCAP. It was a really rapid progression there. (laughs) and uh, I had to rethink how I was going to structure the essay. (laughs) Uh So is your book the thesis,
0: or you did your thesis, and then you did the book based on that?
1: So I did the thesis. That was about 8,000 words, and that was all based – the thesis was really geared around Abraham Kuyper, Mm -hmm. uh, who was kind of a, a limited government Principal, the, the government Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought I have a lot of material here that really doesn't fit into that Abraham Kuiper paradigm. I need to make a book out of this. So the book is kind of based on the thesis research.
0: Okay, and the, and the book is called Taxation is Slavery.
1: Yeah, which was the conclusion of my thesis.
0: Right, right. Okay, so yeah, to let the, let the listeners know where we're going with this. So can I just push you a little bit because that that opening and and folks he he emailed me pitching this idea and I thought wow that's I've never heard a story like that before. So, because there's plenty of people who have made the case that anarcho-capitalism is consistent with Christianity or even that, like, if you really understand the principles and whatever, that, you know, the the true Christian should be an ANCAP and and so on. But what I really liked about your issue was is that you started out as a sort of right-wing conservative type and then, you know, lim- minarchist, let's say, at the very most. and Not
1: quite. I think I, I had to... I had to go through a step through minichism on the way.
0: Oh, okay. So you were even more of a, yeah, towards the stasis. And so, yeah, but it wasn't that you, if I understand it, it it wasn't that you went out, like you happened to be Christian and then you were reading Rothbard and Lysander Spooner and then they converted you and then you had to reconcile that with your Christianity. It was actually going to the Bible, just trying to understand how does the Bible, what does it teach us about taxation that actually you pushed you in that direction? Is that what happened? Pretty much.
1: So I think I, I okay. started off with um, a friend years before had introduced me to Abraham Kuyper. Mm-hmm. For listeners who don't know, he was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, uh, but he was also a Calvinist Christian theologian. Mm-hmm. And he wrote an essay called uh, Calvinism and Politics. And I sort of started with that. I thought this guy, you know, he's Calvinist theologian. He was a politician. He must have thought this through. And mm-hmm. probably he's already got this great framework for it. And I'm just going to study that. And the more I studied it out the more I thought I just there's some deep inconsistencies here I just can't reconcile it and I, I met a guy who actually mentioned to me in passing that he was an anarchist and I thought that's that's really bizarre because I knew he was a, a reformed Christian mm-hmm. I thought you know don't we you know Romans 13 we have to have some taxes right. and this kind of thing so I said you know can you recommend me anything at all to read on on that angle and he said yeah go check out Mises.org and it was it was all downhill from there really and he told me to start with bastiat and so I started reading Bastiat, and that that took me you know, a lot of the way that kind of brought me as far as, okay, this minichism thing makes sense, but like even Bastiat kind of leaves some room for you know military and police type things to be done by the state. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll come that far. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought this, even Bastiat, you know, he's just, why isn't he an anarchist? I don't understand why he doesn't take that last step. I can't. Find a way to reconcile this, but it seems like anarchism can't be the right answer because of some stuff in the Bible. I eventually read Rothbard's Ethics of Liberty, and I think that really that made me rethink some stuff and made me go, "Hold on, maybe this could be done. Maybe this isn't absolutely a pipe dream." Any some sort of describing private defense agency type stuff, mm-hmm. crime insurance, all that kind of thing. I went, "Okay, hold on." Uh, also, I can't remember who wrote it. There's, there's a thing out there on the internet called The Obviousness of Anarchy uh, that I had. In. Huh, I don't think I've seen that. I, just, I found it via YouTube, and it, the whole premise of it was kind of, you know, there is a lot of anarchy going on around you right now. You just don't realize it. There's, you know, there's heaps of private security that exists. It's not like the state actually has a monopoly on security. Private security is everywhere. So let's just, you know, if it's whatever percentage of security it is now, let's just keep expanding that until it's everything. Like, you know this we've proven these things work let's just have more of them and it was just kind of a different way of thinking and i guess that, that kind of gave me permission to explore some of the inconsistencies that i've been struggling with i felt like oh, if i come out the other end and i if anarchism is what makes sense from the text i'm not insane
0: okay so is it true i, I realize now what actually happened is a little bit different from what i what i thought you were originally saying kind of new was it like a simultaneous thing like while you were working on the the thesis and in, in the text and reading bible commentaries you were also reading this other stuff that the, yeah, the so mises.org had oh, okay all the way and i was, and I was so, reading okay.
1: christian socialists and things at the same time as well right right and okay. uh, yeah it was more just a it was a meeting of the minds kind of thing really where i really i'd already come to the conclusion look what makes sense in the text is that taxes are slavery the Bible talks about them as slavery. It uses the language of slavery to describe them everywhere consistently. That's what it is. But if that's the case, how on earth do I reconcile these things in the New Testament that tell you to obey the emperor? And I think seeing that anarcho-capitalism was not just a pipe dream insanity, I felt like that gave me some kind of permission to really explore right. what I thought must already be right just from the text. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if
0: I understand you, it w- was it something like this that as you studied the Bible and folks, don't worry, I will let him make the case like to, you know, h- how does the Bible say taxes or slavery? But let's assume for the moment, stipulate that, okay, and then you were struggling with, but wait a minute, I know that we need taxes to support the modern political state with all of its important functions. And, you know, we don't like what the state doesn't practice, but at least textbook, blah, blah, blah. And so how can this be? Like, how how could the Bible be saying it's slavery? It, does that mean either I'm wrong and thinking that it's saying that, or is the Bible saying slavery is necessary? Well, that's that's weird. And so Rothbard et al. showed you, no, you don't need taxation for a functioning society. Exactly. Okay. So let's jump in then. So how is it? Where? How does the Bible, so I'll let you make the case, and then there's some obvious objections I can imagine a a Christian who
1: believes in at least a limited state bringing up. Yeah, for sure. So I guess the the place that I would start is I don't know, there's a few different ways you come at it. But the first and simplest, I think, is just to look at the language that gets used uh, in the Greek and the Hebrew again and again. We see just the language of slavery used to describe taxes. I think one of the really key ones is 1 Samuel 8, so where Israel is going to get their first king. People kind of overlook a little bit is that for centuries there, between kind of Moses and then Saul and the Davidic kings, Israel didn't have a king. And they, you know, they didn't have taxes in the most kind of common sense. You might argue some certain things about the temple and contributions to the, the temple and priesthood and that sort of thing that's... I go into a nuanced discussion of where all that fits in in the book, but mm-hmm. leaving that aside for a moment, they didn't have a king per se. They didn't have someone like David or Solomon who was actually charging them taxes. And they got by like that for centuries, and the, the time of the judges had serious problems, but it did have periods of peace, and it, it didn't just collapse in less than a century and into absolute chaos. But then they, they get a king, and what... What God says to them through the prophet Samuel is, if you institute this king, he will take a taste. Hey, Nick,
0: can I I stop you just for a second? For for the benefit of the listeners who are vaguely familiar with this. So you're saying, you know, Moses famously leads the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. Egypt. Out of
1: slavery. They
0: wander for 40 years. They get into the promised land and then they know at some point like, oh, and then King David comes along, but you want to stress, there was a long period in between there yeah, where, you know, the, the people of Israel were the, the 12, they were up and running, but there was no state apparatus for sure. There was like a religious exactly. hierarchy and, and hence there was no
1: taxation formally. Yeah, there was there was um, governance, we might say, but not government. Right. And this was the, the period of judges. Yeah. So they had judges, okay. but judges did not exact taxes. Right. And again, I had kind of show that in some detail through the book. Uh, at one point, they, they try to get Gideon to become the king, and he refuses. He you when know, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, he'll be the judge, but he won't be the king. He won't exact taxes. Anyway, when they do ask finally for a king, God says through the prophet Samuel, look, if you have a king, you'll take a tenth of all your stuff, and you will be his slaves. That is the language that God uses. You'll be his slaves. And you know that was kind of a turning point for you to kind of see that there on the page. You mm-hmm. kind of trace that through and sort of went, okay, that does carry through. Throughout, further into the Old Testament, uh, when when David or Solomon when they conquer an area, when they you know fight off a of foreign nation and conquer them, that nation pays them taxes and becomes their slaves. That's you know, that language always goes hand in hand. They became their slaves and paid tribute. Mm-hmm. That's thing that carries through into the New Testament. Even uh, there's a point where Jesus is talking to Peter and uh, you know Jesus. Hey, hey Nick,
0: sorry to stop you, but I just I just want to make sure I'm catching you. Are you saying that like? To say they became their slaves and paid tribute, like you're saying, that, how do we know they were their slaves? Oh, because look at, they keep sending them periodic money. Like, in other words, the, that's the the outward sign that we know they're in subjection and are slaves. In other words, it's not that they were bound in chains and were yeah. taken back to, and, and were picking, you know, fruit or something. It was that they had to keep sending these this money or else troops yeah, were going to exactly. show up and,
1: you know, kill exactly. some people. Okay. Yeah, so that's yeah, good point to clarify. The, the point I kind of make through a lot of that section of the book is the text of the Old Testament uses this language. It says, I've got one of them right here, 1 Chronicles 18.2, and he defeated Moab and the Moabites became slaves to David and brought tribute. Mm-hmm. That's that's how the text phrases it. But clearly from context, mm-hmm. what it means is they keep bringing regular you know, right, tribute right. funds. Um, so it's not that yeah, someone's standing over them, cracking your whip, forcing them to work on Particular things. Right. They're just right. they are forced to bring regular tribute, and that means that they are slaves. That makes them slaves. Right. And that right. language That's carries great. through to the New Testament. Jesus uses the language of slavery and freedom to describe uh, the, the tax that he and Peter pay. For the, you know, it's an obscure story in the New Testament, but there's a point where temple officials are asking Peter, Hey, does, does Jesus pay the tax here? And Jesus says, Look, you know, I don't have to pay the tax because it's my father's house and I'm a son, sons are free. Taxes are paid not by free people, but by the slaves. So again, that, that language is just consistent. And mm-hmm. other places in the New Testament where uh, paying taxes is discussed, the language of slavery mm-hmm. is right there beside it. Into the church fathers, uh, we see uh, particularly, I think, uh, Tertullian makes this point that he sarcastically says, you know, Caesar, if he was going to take over heaven, what would taking over heaven look like? It would look like Caesar trying to impose a tax on heaven. So just, That's what the church father says? Yeah. Uh, so it just, it's this consistent thing through Old Testament, New Testament church fathers. They just identify paying taxes with being enslaved by a foreign king in a foreign nation.
0: Okay, and so tell me if if this violates your theological, but I would say not only did, did God the father in the Old Testament tell the Israelites, if you wanna be free, you wouldn't pay taxes. So are you sure you want a king, right? But then also Jesus, the son, what I meant with the theology was, calling the guy the old testament the father and, and oh, then yeah. the, the Jesus the son in the New Testament reiterates that and says I don't owe a tax because I'm I'm free. Exactly. You know, and, and only people who aren't free would actually owe it. But is that the one where he goes into the gets it out of the fish's mouth? That's the one. So he chooses okay. to
1: pay yeah. it, but he says, I wouldn't mm. I don't have to, but so as not to give offense to them. Go and get a coin out right. of the fish's mouth and pay it for both of us. So he, he sort of takes this let's not make waves approach but let me be clear. I don't, I don't have to pay that. The sounds are free. Okay,
0: great. Okay. So is there more you want to say? I mean, I think you've, you've pointed out enough. Do you, you the more yeah, you want to say or did, should we move to, okay. So, enough for now. okay. So then, I mean, obvious stuff. There's certain passages. I mean, every, every April 15th, I go to, <laughs> is it, Bi- is I think it's Biblegateway.com. I go to this, a website that has like a verse of the day yeah. and they always yeah. say, and this is why you pay taxes. You know, and it's every April 15th keeping us, you know, all right, you know, I'm a good Christian and I don't I may not like it, but this is why we do it. And so how, how do you I mean, that's the standard objection someone's going to bring up is doesn't the Bible clearly say, Yeah, you know, we this is the reason we pay taxes.
1: Yeah. And so that, that's the elephant in the room always with this discussion is Romans 13. And so I made a deliberate choice to start the book with that passage, just knowing mm-hmm. anyone who knows anything already about the subject, that's going to be the, the critical thing.
0: In fact, let me pull it up just to, do you happen to have it in front of you or should I pull it up? I do, I do have it in front of me. Oh, okay, yeah, what, can you actually just say, because we're assuming everybody knows it verbatim. Can you just go ahead and read it just so everyone knows exactly what we're grappling with? Sure.
1: Please. Uh, so this is Romans thirteen one to seven. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed.
0: Okay, so prima facie, it looks tough if you're telling me the Bible says taxation is theft. So how do you, so yeah, like I said, I think there's two routes. One is you could say you're wrong in thinking that taxation is theft from the Bible or two is the Bible is endorsing slavery and to be fair, there are other passages people get mad and say yeah. there are places too where, where, where Paul does seem to, you know, talking like, like, you know, masters be nice to your slaves, slaves, be, you know, that kind of stuff. So it is true even that the Bible doesn't in some places seem like it's going to overturn slavery in an earthly sense.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the big things I bring out very early in the book uh, is just I do a chapter on what, when the Bible talks about slavery, what's it talking about? and try to make a mm-hmm. very important distinction between conquest slavery versus contract slavery. Right. So there are people who are slaves because they've entered into like a debt repayment contract. It's for you know, a limited time or until they've paid off a of debt, that sort of thing. And that is okay. That is not considered immoral or unethical. It's sort of considered an undesirable state to be in, but it's not immoral. Right. There's a real sense in which you could call a mortgage a slavery contract. It's, right, it's a debt right. You're working for someone else. But there's conquest everywhere. where the king rolls into right. town, puts the sword to everyone, and says, you know, you've got to start bringing tribute. That's obviously wildly immoral. Right. To so to give the listeners
0: an example, like way back, if, you know, someone was in Europe and wanted to go to the New World, and it was, it was way too expensive, you know, some 20-year-old guy, and he couldn't afford the passage. and he might, if he, if he said to the ship captain, okay, can you take me over there? And then once we get there in the new colony or whatever settlement, I'll, I'll work for you for three years you know, you got me you a room and board because I got to live. But in a sense, th- like that is the kind of thing you're saying that certain passages of the Bible, that's what, they, what they're calling, what is being translated as like master, slave, or bond, servant might be a, a more neutral that's term. The thing, yeah.
1: that, that's the okay. thing in English. It's, you see the language of slave or servant or bond servant in the ESV, I think it mm-hmm. is. But it's actually in the Greek, it's all the same. It's all just slave.
0: And so okay. I think that that is right, definitely
1: there. Again, like just, I unpack this in quite a bit of detail in the book. You can tell from context these are very different things. The Bible is extraordinarily against conquest slavery in a vehement way, but right, right. not contract slavery. So, like for instance, like Jacob wants to marry Rachel. Uh, he's one of the mm-hmm. Old Testament patriarchs, so he works for seven years for her father in lieu of a dowry. And it's a contract slavery set up in payment of right, this right. dowry he wants to provide. That kind of thing is very different to, you know, Caesar rolling in, you know, right, Israel is now under the Roman Empire, start paying up.
0: Okay, so I kind of derailed you there, took you down on a cul-de-sac, but so the main thing is in Romans 13, as you just read there a minute ago, so Paul seems like he's saying, you know, pay taxes, and so how how do you grapple with that?
1: Yeah, so that was probably the toughest question in the book, and I think the way I came at it was to actually start with a couple of other New Testament passages first. Mm-hmm. to show something that's going on. So those are 1 Peter and Titus. Uh, that both actually kind of say similar things, uh, you know, honour the emperor, give respect, pay the taxes, that sort of thing. But in those other passages, it's much more, you know, just one verse away from slaves obey your earthly masters. It's, you know, there's this very clear connection that mm-hmm. the reason you submit to Caesar and pay the taxes is the same reason that slaves submit to their masters. And if you look a bit more carefully at Romans, you see that Romans 13 comes at the end of Romans 12. Romans 12 is this continual progression of love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, you know, pray for them. And you know, at the end of this increasingly strong set of calls to love your enemy, the cherry on top of that is submit to the emperor, pay the taxes. Mm-hmm. And if you read that all as you know, chapter 12 and 13 as a whole, instead of what we usually do is you know, pay too much attention to the the chapter break there and start with just 13. Right. If you read that as a progression, suddenly I think it makes a lot more sense. You see that what Romans 13 is really doing is giving you the, um, mm-hmm. the kind of ultimate application of what, what I've called tactical pacifism. Right. That if you're stuck in the position of a slave, you can choose to be submissive and love your master and do good to him and you know, overcome evil with good. And so it's the same thing we see with uh, like Daniel and Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, when when Israel gets conquered and they get shipped off into slavery, mm. uh, you know they go before this king who has conquered them, but they you know they wish them long life and good health. And your know, Nehemiah goes before Artaxerxes and says, you know, may the king live forever. And you know, he operates as a servant in the household. Right. It's it's that kind of thing. It's it's choosing to be submissive and loving in spite of what's being done to you. Okay. And by the way, Nick,
0: you're, you're not the first person I've heard say that when we read Romans 13, you need to realize it comes after Romans 12, which makes sense. And and so reading the whole thing, it does at least seeing the context helps, but, but still having said all that, I mean, it's some of that language in there, you know, about for this is why, you know, God's put them in charge and, you know, Hey, if you have, it sounds like he's saying, if you haven't done anything wrong, the ruler's not going to bother you any. And so on the face of it, that is a weird thing to say because Paul at various points was in prison for yeah. proclaiming Christ. And so clearly, you know, it, it's, like, it's sort of a weird thing where like he couldn't possibly mean what it sounds like he's saying. Mm. And we're not just doing that because of our Rothbardianism, just because yeah. just knowing his history, you know, he, and he obviously knows that it's, you know, Herod's not someone who's who hasn't ever sinned know in his life. You do right.
1: sometimes have things to fear from the state, even if you're doing the right. Thing. right.
0: <laughs> right, so I, I don't know, do you want to speak to that a little? I mean, I've heard different theories that, oh, he was having to be cool to get the message out subtly, or yeah. when he says, for example, give taxes to whom they're owed, if you don't think you owe taxes to anybody because you're an anarchist, well then, you see what I'm saying? Like it's kind of yeah. a clever, so, so how do you feel about this? It is possible
1: that there's some subtlety going on there with the context, because you have to remember mm-hmm. that Paul is writing this when the Roman Empire is very much in power, and he's mm-hmm. writing it to Christians in Rome, who are, I think at this point there's already been this expulsion of the Jews from Rome. I think I've got the timeline right there. Maybe don't quote me on that. That's I'm having to dig back into the college days. But you know, there is there is a real threat of persecution for the Christians in Rome from the Roman authorities. And so Paul knowing that you know anyone might intercept this letter and open it up, mm-hmm. there is the possibility that he's being deliberately a bit cautious about exactly what he says in it and trying to make the case that. Look, we are not here to rock the boat. We're not here to overturn Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are we're citizens who can be relied on not to cause trouble. He, he may even be sort of playing that angle a bit more strongly than he otherwise would, just because of that context. Uh, that that right. is a real okay. possibility. Um, I don't I don't know if I want to be dogmatic or conclusive about it, but it is worth kind of bearing in mind. Yeah, we see that actually also in the church fathers. Tertullian says that very explicitly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kind of pretty open right. about the fact that, yeah, the, the Roman state is the enemy of the church and of the believers, but we submit to it anyway because we're Christians and we love our enemies. That's what we do. That's that's how we roll. Right, right. right.
0: And and also the earlier passage with Jesus and, and Peter and the, the temple tax just yeah. epitomizes that, right? So that's another feather in your cap for the position you're trying to take is that – so If I, if I get what you're saying, you're saying – Paul in Romans 13 is not contradicting your claim that the Bible says taxes are theft. He's just saying, if someone is stealing from you, like, you know, a standard Christian would probably say, if there's a mugger who comes up and says, give me your wallet, and your only choices are to give him the wallet or to shoot him in the head, a lot of Christians would probably say, you know, really, if you really want to go above and beyond, just give him the money rather than having to yeah. kill the guy.
1: Here's my wallet and here's my watch. God bless you. <laughs> That that's a legitimate Christian thing to do,
0: <laughs> and clearly Jesus there in you know in the earlier passage we discussed says I don't owe this tax. So in a sense, if someone thought you know if someone pointed a gun at him and said you got to pay this tax, or back then it wouldn't be a gun, but um, yeah, yeah. if so they were going to club that, him, yeah, then he he you know that would be clearly theft, right? If, if taking yeah. it from him, but he's saying I I choose to pay it you know, so as not to give offense and or so on, you know, to, to ruffle feathers because, you know, his, his, his purpose there is for something else. It's not to overturn temple taxation
1: policies. Yeah. Okay. And just to, just to drive that point home, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things when I started doing the, really the biblical study, one of the things I went looking for is, is there any case in the Bible of someone refusing to pay a tax? Does that come up ever in, in the Bible? And I found actually, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two cases in Judges that are really, I think, the big clear ones, which are Ehud and Gideon. Mm-hmm. Under Ehud, Israel's been conquered by, let me get this right, it's the Moabites. Israel's been conquered by the Moabites. Eglon's the king of Moab, and Ehud gets delegated to take Israel's tribute to e- to Eglon. And he goes there and he assassinates the king and kind of ends the whole tribute tax relationship. Whatever you might call that, it's not pacifism. That's, he's not choosing right, the tactic right. of pacifism there. He's assassinating the king who's asking for taxes. And mm-hmm. uh, the other one is Gideon who you know, leads a revolt. And when we meet Gideon, it says he's beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he's sort of engaged in tax evasion.
0: Can, just for, for listeners who don't know, the, can you spell that last one out a little? I, I know what you're talking about, but can you spell that out? Yes, yeah, so,
1: uh, tribute and taxes might not always be paid in money, uh, particularly that early in history. Uh, you know Exactly what was being used as the money is in a bit of flux. Soldiers might turn up and demand tribute, but the tribute might just be, you know, a portion of the wheat harvest, or you know, a portion of the cattle flock, or whatever it is. So, yeah, part of what Gideon is doing when he, we meet him, and the first thing we're told about Gideon is that he's beating out wheat in the wine press. He's instead of beating it out openly in the field, he's doing his wheat production stuff, you know, in this hidden, secluded, tucked away place inside the wine press to make sure that the Midianites can't come and take his wheat. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, so there are these acts of over tax evasion and rebellion in the Old Testament, and they're sanctioned by God. You know, God sends Gideon. Right. So, you know, I'm left thinking to myself, my big question, I think, going in was, how do I reconcile that with what Paul says in Romans 13? How on earth can I put those together? That was probably my biggest biblical tension.
0: Right, right. Since we're talking about Romans 13, let me just throw out two of the points that I make about this, particularly when I'm dealing with, like Christian conservative types. And so one is I'll say, like, because they'll be like, oh yeah, you libertarian, you think taxation's, well, they just, you, you don't like tax, but well, come on, Romans 13, you know, the authorities are put there by God. And and I'll say to them, if I'm talking to US conservative types who, you know, who are religious, I'll say, well, wait a minute, the United States government went and overthrew Saddam Hussein's regime. So wasn't Saddam put there by God to, you know, any, you know, the Kurds, as long as they didn't do anything evil, they had nothing to fear from Saddam. So why, who are we to interfere? And so whatever argument they give me to explain that I could just as well say, okay, so you at least admit in principle, not all earthly governments, you agree, nobody can mess with, you know, that all regimes are sacrosanct because God put them there. Right. And then, mm. and then once they give that and I say, okay, by your own law, you know, you guys always tout the constitution and everything like that's your favorite book ever written, except the Bible. And so the U S government clearly isn't following the constitution So under any metric, as long as you've already admitted the principle that not all governments just deserve to always be be upheld, you know, so that I'll go that route with them. But the other thing I'll mention is maybe this is part of your evolution, how you said like Rothbard and those people like sort of gave you permission to entertain this train of thought is clearly when Paul was writing this stuff, he didn't have in mind competing defense agencies and arbitration procedures. And blah, blah, you know what I mean? It's not like he had no yeah. Robert Nozick on the back shelf and he was like, Yeah, this guy nailed it. And that's why I'm not an ANCAP. So I think partly like what he's calling, like the word government in a broad enough sense, I'm not against government either. I'm like, that's yeah. actually why I say, Nick, like I'm against the state to be more yeah. specific. Because government just means. i
1: use used the language the state in the book for that same reason.
0: Okay, great. Yeah. So you've seen that as well, too, because there's a sense. So, because certainly there would be law. In a, in a Rothbardian type world. Yeah, um, and, and so you could even say there would be government if by what, what you mean by government is, you know, are there, there'd even be authorities in a mm-hmm. sense like, hey, Richard Feynman is an authority in physics in that sense, you know, there'd be legal experts and whatever. So partly I I, I could just argue, and, and, and I've seen people say this too, that in Romans 13, what he's saying is like mm-hmm. the just authorities and to, the, to them it's owed. And so, yeah, in an ANCAP world, you know, if you sign contracts and then the reputable judges and they rule it, you know, some somebody, somebody yeah. said, Hey, this guy didn't follow the contract, and a judge ruled against you, you really ought to pay what the court said there because that's what the law says. And, and that's the context. Whereas, yeah, if it's a criminal organization that's the state, just because they say they're the law, that doesn't mean they are. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. And the way I drive it home is if Paul saw the modern United States, or even, you know, the, the United States in, in 1950 or whatever, like, you know, what conserves love, he wouldn't say right-on guy. He'd probably say, you let women vote? Are you out of your minds? That's that's <laughs> not, re- you, you see what I mean? So he's clearly, yeah, what he's writing there in Roman's is his idea, context, yeah. right, his idea of what proper government looks like is not, you know, we would say we have the advantage of all sorts of philosophy and whatever since then. And so I'm yeah. saying it's conceivable, one way you can reconcile it, and I don't think you're just grasping at straws, is to say, yeah, what Paul means by a just government and the the proper authorities to whom tribute is owed would be like the regular court system in an ANCAP world. And yeah, if the, if the judge said, yeah. you have a dispute you bring it to the judge and he says, okay, here's my fee. Well, you got to pay that, you know, because the judges yeah. do that, you know, anyway. I, how do you feel and about that
1: stuff? Is that? Uh, yeah, like I got a lot of nuanced thoughts on that. Uh, like I said, the the back end of the book has a really actually quite a detailed discussion of uh, government in Israel during the time of the judges. mm mm-hmm and really draws out this idea that what's the difference really between a judge and a king in the, the biblical context? And there's really not much mm-hmm. except for taxes.
0: The judge oh, okay,
1: really, yeah. uh, kind of mediates disputes and leads the army in battle when Israel gets invaded and you know, provides kind of those same services that the king provides, except that he doesn't take taxes. He doesn't take involuntary payments. That's kind of the key distinction. And there's a whole reason for that. Like you see in 1 Samuel 8, the reason they're asking for a king is because some of the judges are corrupt. The judges are taking bribes. Mm-hmm. And the rationale seems to be, well, if we have a king and he can just take whatever he wants from anyone anytime, any time, he's completely insusceptible to bribery. Because how could you bribe someone who can have anything they want? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that'll just solve that problem. We'll just have a king like everyone else. And I think you know, God's message through Samuel is kind of, this is going to backfire. This is not <laughs> as good an idea as you right. think. You'll be slaves. Mm-hmm.
0: It's funny because I was going to say to you, well, but, but gee, it's not just the, you know, he, he talks about like the, all the horses and the this and the that and the, but sur- yeah. I guess your point is right. He can afford, the king can afford that and the judge can't because the king has the taxation power. Exactly. So that's why he has all the big entourage and all that stuff that goes with it. Okay.
1: Uh, and, and there's really this idea that before they have a human king, God is their king. So it's not even that they strictly mm-hmm. don't have a king. It's just that God is their king. And then he even uses the language of, look, Israel are my slaves. And that's part of why they you know, pay certain fees and things at the temple. You know, there's a poll tax that they pay at the temple that is really to God because God is their king. It's a difficult thing to categorize pre-monarchical Israel. You know, do, you know, do you say it's an anarchist society? Kind of. They don't mm. have a king. Like, they sort of have God as a king. They have judges. that Ultimately, right. there is kind of a monopolized final Supreme Court of Appeal at the temple. So it's not a totally decentralized judicial system, but it's, not, like, it's right. pretty close. Right, so, okay, so you raised two interesting points there. In terms of classifying,
0: I think a lot of people say, oh, it's a theocracy. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's fine. But are you, but are you saying that's not specific there's, enough? There's a
1: bunch of things left out of that, right? Because you might call an Islamic like right. a caliphate of theocracy, and it's a very different thing. Right, sure, sure, right. That's, right you right.
0: know, there's a lot of
1: detail that you miss by just using the word theocracy. <laughs> right, okay. Although that is accurate. But, right, I
0: gotcha. And then, so yeah, this issue of, so what I've done, at some point, Nick, I stopped... Volunteering that I was an anarchist. So if I'm like at a libertarian event, yeah, and somebody says, "Hey, Doctor Murphy, are you are you an anarchist?" I'll say yes because I know what they mean. They mean as opposed to a minarchist or whatever, Absolutely. you know. And so I'll say, but I don't volunteer precisely because I say, well, technically I have a king, mm. Jesus, and so that would make me a monarchist. So I don't say I'm a monarchist yeah. either because that would confuse yeah. people too. But I, I will say, you know, I I'm a voluntarist perhaps or or something like that, or you
1: know. I've taken so, um, years in the language of voluntarists as well, and because I think it, it just opens mm-hmm. the conversation on such a better note and really gets at the heart of, you know, how are my right. political views different to yours? It's because I believe in doing everything voluntarily. Right, right, exactly.
0: Not to mention, yeah, the historical baggage. Last time of- I had
1: an, had an election here in state, we, we have mandatory voting. We get fined if we don't come and vote. Very different. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, I rocked up there so I wouldn't have to pay the fine, but I wore a t shirt with a, it has like the anarchist A, but with a Christian cross through and it says, no king but Christ. I think that's kind okay, yeah, nice. of yeah. how I come at it. You're like, yeah, in a sense, anarchy, but really divine monarchy is what I'd like to call it rather. But right. Again, to subtly distinguish from what people think of as theocracy, I prefer the term divine monarchy, but I made that up so no one else knows what I mean.
0: <laughs> right, right. That's good. That's good. I mean, part of the fun of being an anarcho-capitalist is that very few people know what that means. But, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, so we're, even, we're even more exclusive. Say something <laughs> that even the standard Rothbardian says, what are you talking about? Yeah. So... Just to push that a little bit, so maybe one way of putting it is the reason God doesn't want the Israelites to embrace an earthly king is not only because, hey, that's a bad idea. It's going to go poorly for you, but you're, you're usurping me. I'm, I'm yeah. really your guy's king, and by you embracing the earthly, you're just you know, copying the pagans and you're, you're forgetting me.
1: Exactly. And there's this idea in biblical theology that you can trace a theme all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and... By tracing the theme through, you kind of, you get a bunch of richness out of it. Doesn't mean you don't see everything, like you can trace the theme of like sacrifice all the way through, or you can trace mm-hmm. the theme of, you know, you know, what is a king all the way through. And one of the things I tried to do in the book was kind of show the gospel from Genesis to Revelation through the lens of who is going to be king. So, you know, start out with God as king. People move into having, you know, they reject him in the garden, obviously, but move into having human kings. And there's this whole tension of when are God's people going to have God as their king again. And then Jesus comes and just you know kind of reconciles all of that. They're going to have a human king, Jesus, who's also God, their king. He puts it all together, and that, that's kind of how it all gets fixed. That's the gospel solution to this problem of humanity not having God as their king. And this really comes to a head when the people come to crucify Jesus. And uh-huh. I think Pilate says to them, you know, shall I crucify your king? And the crowds cry out, we have no king but Caesar. It's mm-hmm. like this moment of just, stark rejection of you know we won't have god as our king we'll have caesar instead caesar is the idol and right that all gets kind of fleshed in the last chapter of the book i try to really end on that gospel note mm-hmm.
0: like notice guys in your zeal to kill jesus look what you ended up saying like that's not a coincidence that yeah exactly by the way that was what you just said there was was gorgeous i mean once you said it i realized oh yeah that was staring me in the face i never thought of that before that among other things, when Jesus comes, but he reconciles the human, saying, no, no, we want, an, you know, we want a, man, a man as our king, and God's saying, well, really, it should be me, and then Jesus fixes that. that that's awesome. Yeah, I, all I've tension in one semi is before. resolved when mm-hmm. Jesus
1: comes, and every other tension of the Old Testament, really.
0: Mm-hmm. So can I ask you, just as a practical question, I'm not sure if the Bible gets into this, or if you, you obviously, you've been reading other things, too. So my understanding is the judges did not make law. They were just trying to apply the law that you know, Moses gave them from God, yeah. obviously. Yeah. W- did the kings make law or were they also technically, or at least what they were supposed to be doing was just interpreting, the, the, applying the law to specific cases, or did they engage in what you know Hayek would call legislation?
1: Uh, I, had some, I don't think I could answer this really in a lot of detail. I haven't tried to really flesh out thoughts on this, but definitely... I mean, definitely the kings kind of legislate as far as at least, you know, what are their taxes going to be? The kings didn't all have the same tax rates, and they didn't tax all mm-hmm. the same things. Um, so at least as far as that aspect of their laws, they they were different to one another, um, you know, different generations. Uh, you know, Solomon was known for putting pretty heavy taxes on Israel, and then his son comes up, and to kind of prove that he's just as just as solid of a king as his father, he says, "You know, I'm I'm going to impose even heavier burden just to show that I'm an even bigger badder guy." Well, what's interesting is, given what you said, so yeah, so far since God
0: didn't want them to have an earthly king, it's almost like they would have to just start improvising because the the law from God, the Mosaic Law would not have provided. Yeah. Now an earthly king is going to tax capital gains at this much up to the you know cost basis and blah, blah, blah. And so yeah, exactly. that, you know, in terms of where did this idea come from that people, you know, that the rulers just start making stuff up and saying, oh, this is the law. Like you could say that's, in this case, it, it came <laughs> in the, the back door via taxation.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting because for, for Israel specifically, the Mosaic Law does have limitations on the power of the king. It says, you know, the king must not do this, must not do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does kind of make provision for, you might choose to have a human king in the future. That's, that's something foreseen in the Mosaic law, but there right, are certain right. limits on it because you know, God will still ultimately be king. The human king of Israel mm-hmm. will only ever be subordinate and they'll have certain powers. I even go into that, I think the, the king of Israel specifically, in contrast to most other kings, does have the kind of legitimate authority to tax. That is legitimately delegated to that king through a contract, I think.
0: Okay, so maybe, may, sorry, maybe I, I jumped the gun then. Maybe I misspoke. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. Are you, are you saying?
1: So virtually every other king conquers by conquest and that's totally illegitimate. Okay. But Israel's a very okay. special case where I think there is a contract involved in setting up the king's power. Okay, be, because they wanted Saul to be their king. Yeah.
0: So, so God said, all right, you guys want a king. I'm telling you. Through Samuel, you, you, this is a mistake. But okay, this guy Saul, his, he's going to be your king, and they wanted it. So Saul didn't conquer Israel.
1: Is that what you're exactly. getting at? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So and because of that, you know, the the contract has certain stipulations, and limitations, and you know the king should not, you know, should not amass I army. Mean, not that they always obey this, but that in the Mosaic law, they right. shouldn't amass an army over a certain size because you know God is meant to be who fights for them, and it's sort of an act of faith. Okay. Yeah. I, so I'm trying to remember how we got on that train of discussion. I got a bit lost.
0: Well, I had, I don't know if this is how far back, because originally when you had said the one distinction between the judges and the Uh, king was taxation, I thought, well, wait, is a different one to legislation? And so I had asked you, does the king make laws different from how the judges just
1: interpreted and applied the law? Yes, in practice, the kings definitely did that. I think Uh, whether, you know, how much they should have been doing that is another question, but they essentially just operate like the pagan kings who were a law unto themselves and made whatever laws they wanted at any time for any reason. Mm-hmm. especially the bad kings of Israel are very much like that. Uh, but the, I think the goal for the judges and the kings, but you know, definitely for the judges, was that you would have the natural law, you know, the, the moral law of God that existed before Moses ever came, before you know, Exodus and Deuteronomy. You know, there's hundreds of years where it's just you know, Genesis on, where there really is no, uh, no sense of you know, God has said 600-some-odd laws that are in the Old Testament. That's not in existence yet. People still knew what was right and wrong. That's all from the natural law, and Israel's law through Moses is really just a particular concrete implementation of that natural law in a concrete society. So then the judge's goal is to take the the kind of the case law, the set of case law that God provides through the Mosaic law, and build on that. So God kind of sets Mm -hmm. up a common law system with this set of existing case law from Moses. And the judges kind of start with that as their base. That's all their precedents that they use to judge new cases.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, great. If we can now pivot the remaining 15 or so minutes we have here. Let me just find it in the email. You said, uh, I noticed in a previous episode, you're interested in intelligent design. And you said that you connected the research of ID theory. So folks, ID stands for intelligent design. I.D. theorist with the Locke and Rothbardian notion of homesteading. So can mm. you expand on that? Because that, that sounded pretty interesting.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, so my, before I did theology stuff, my earlier education was in computer science and I got really interested in intelligent design stuff while I was doing that. I was actually at one point looking to write a master's about how to quantify information in a computer system and then to try and apply that to kind of biological systems and information stored in the DNA and you know, try to go down that whole intelligent design route. Uh, then I found a book by a guy named Werner Gitt uh, that I thought this is actually better than anything I was gonna write as a thesis, so I'm just not gonna bother. Uh, so that was excellent. Mm-hmm. But I got really interested in that whole space. And as I was kind of contemplating this whole idea of homesteading and stuff Locke said about, you know, once you transform a resource out of the state of nature, it becomes private property. I was kind of reflecting on this, all the reading I'd done about kind of philosophically what happens in intelligent design. And I thought there's, I think these are actually kind of talking about the same thing. Briefly, I think to understand the world, you have to understand it in terms of three fundamental quantities. Most people in science will talk about matter and energy. There's really a third, which is information. Mm -hmm. Uh, A book is something different to a pile of paper and ink. The organization of material things makes them into something different than what they were, just the sheer arrangement, not any physical properties that it
0: has. Can I, can I, just can I, can I stop you real fast? And just like, just for the listener who's, If you're out walking in the woods and you see a bunch of sticks that are arranged and says, you know, stop, help Help us, yeah, Yeah. that there wouldn't be anything against the laws of physics, you know, like, oh, no, those atoms could be like that. It's just, you know, intelligence is is involved here. And and so that's the sense in which in the mere matter and energy per se, it's the arrangement, it's the information contained. And then that's the whole, you know, thing of, so just to make make sure they have something...
1: And I think you mm-hmm. can do it pretty rigorously. So there's, yeah, there's references in the book, if you want to look that up, guys like William Dembski and, right, right. and Robert Marks and, and Joan again have kind of gone into some depth how you can quantify this, even in cases where, you know, if you saw a word spelled out with sticks, but it was in a language you don't speak, you would still know. Right, right. Even if you don't understand the message, you know that it is a message. And Lockheed and homesteading, in a way, kind of presupposes this. If you're going to look at a piece of land and say, is this in the state of nature or has it been transformed, how can you tell? You have to be able to perceive, mm-hmm. okay, there's some organization here which comes from intelligent intent. Uh, and so you know, there's, there's a difference between a forest and a garden. They're, mm-hmm. they're both, at one level, they're just some land and plants, but one has, one's been organized, one's been laid out into a particular arrangement to be pleasant, the garden, whereas the forest is just you know, as it grew in nature. And increasingly, I started to think about, you know, what is production, right? In in the economic sense, we don't make anything new. Only God makes things out of nothing. Only God creates ex nihilo, to use the theological term, out of nothing. People don't do that. They just rearrange existing matter. So in a sense, all economic production is expending energy upon matter to impose information. That's what economic production is. And, As I thought that through, that leads to some really interesting uh, kind of implications, Uh, one of which is it kind of explains part of, you know, why why don't people who own a whole bunch of land, why don't they just dominate the economy? Why aren't farmers massively the wealthiest people in the economy? Because they have so much land and we can't make more of it, right? How come Mm -hmm. they don't dominate the wealth system? And the reason is because Really there's not that much information that's gone into that land. There's some definitely like you know we the laid out pipes for irrigating and that sort of thing. but you know this I'm looking at you through a smartphone as my webcam right now that's it's mm-hmm. tiny relative to the size of a farm, but there's so much information densely packed into that small piece of material and it's really the information that represents the the economic wealth in a very real way
0: yeah like that last thing you just hit on there. I've I've had thoughts of that too. Like if you see worker, a worker going into a big factory and they have steel and glass and and then cars come out the other end of the pipeline, you understand that. But like Stephen King sits down at his computer to type a best selling novel and he's working all day. And like, there's nothing physical. It's like he rearranged the zeros and ones inside of his hard drive or whatever. And yet there's a sense in which you can see, Whoa, look at what he just created. This amazing novel and, you know, and so yeah. it's clearly it's the information that he's done there. It's not like, what did you physically do? And like you say, everything, even farmers, because this is like certain economic doctors, like the physiocrats and whatever, or there's this idea that advertising isn't really productive, whereas, you know, manufacturing is. And from an economic, you know, subjective value viewpoint, those, those are arbitrary that even farmers, like you say, they don't actually create anything out of nothing. It's no, they rearrange matter. Yeah. So yes. The, it's it's the influx of information is one way of,
1: of thinking about it yeah and when you take that a step further and you get into the kind of Rothbard's idea that you know you have self-ownership you you're just innately immediately at birth given ownership of your body you have instantly control of you know eyes and the mouth and hands and it's kind of things. okay mm. god kind of gives you from the outset enough matter that you control but you can then start doing production all you need to make information mm-hmm. is the mind and you know you have hands, you can impose it on material, you can start doing production. And there's it's kind of this it's almost like an insurance policy against monopoly.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? Anyone can do production. You really don't need other stuff. You have everything you need to start coming up with information and imposing mm-hmm. it on matter. And that's that partly explains why we don't just gravitate into total monopoly over time, you know, without the imposition of violence. It's normal that Everyone would keep producing, and there'd be kind of harmony, and our interests would be aligned. Uh, I'm really picking up on that idea from Bastiat of Economic Harmony. Right, right. Huh.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I guess um, I was going to say I haven't read Locke in a while. I don't even know if I ever really did read the original. I probably did, just like at least the passages about the homesteading stuff. Locke's second um, treatise. It's, it's not that long. It's one of the first things I read when I started the uh, thesis. uh uh-huh. So, but just to see like how much of it, because the way like we think of it is, he said, you got to transform yeah. the, the land, right? And and so then that does raise the question of, well, transform it how? Yeah. And is this true that, are you saying someone who comes upon it, do they need to recognize like, I guess at the very least just to be able to prove it. Yeah. Right. Sure. Because if I came along and I said, oh, I, I homesteaded this forest 10 years ago. Mm. And someone said, I don't see any evidence of that. And I said, no, you see how there's, leaves on the trees i did that
1: Yes. Yeah, so you, you could say no this, That <laughs> trees normally naturally have leaves there is this difficult case of uh, kind of abandoned land mm-hmm. or land that was homesteaded but has since been left so alone that it's kind of been overgrown again and you, is that back mm-hmm. in a state of nature you might say so and i think Rothbard deals with some of the practicalities of that like how you might right. have you know system of title searches and there's no reason why homesteaded property should revert to the state of nature if someone still knows that, oh, you like, if you have a record, right. who homesteaded it? There's no reason why it should just revert just because they're not having to use it right now. I think that's right, fair. Right. But on the other hand, if it reverts to what looks like a state of nature and no one is claiming it anymore, then it should be free to be re-homesteaded. But even there, it still fits your thesis that there's the information
0: involved, yeah, right? like we like in other words, show me an arrangement of atoms to prove that you homestead it yeah this this title right here that's in the courthouse, you see what yeah. I'm saying like this pens- you know the, the atoms are the ink homes. on this piece of paper or whatever, and so that that is the that is the the evidence you know flowing through history of my original intervention, yeah. And you're right, too. This is, we're getting real philosophical here at Meta. There's a sense in which, I was just thinking this the other day, you know, like in the Disney movies, there seems to be this contrast between man and nature. And so on one, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, Bambi, everything's great in Bambi. All the animals are cool, but man Mm. comes along and and it's like, well, wait a minute. We're part of nature too. But yet that actually is a compliment, even though in the movies, man is cast as ominous and this threat to good nature. Yet it's almost like a compliment, like we're so you know what I mean. Like it's almost yeah. acknowledging the Bible, saying that we have dominion. That there yeah. is a sense in which no, what well, we do, like in other words, when it's a like when, people, when environmentalists be... worry worry about recycling and stuff like that, that um, you know, and they say, oh, because man made products don't biodegrade, and there's a sense in which well, everything we we make, you know, isn't that just nature? Do you, you get what I'm saying, and yet there there does seem to yeah. be a, a, a qualitative difference. Like we know what people mean if they see a plastic yeah. bottle on the ground. And say, "Oh man, that's look what we did. We we spoiled nature with that." Yeah. And so that's an excellent point. But but it's uh, where I'm going with this is that you, what you're saying. Kind of it, that kind of fits that like it, human agency or intelligence doing things out in the world. Like it leaves its mark, and so that like that's kind of what maybe one way of of, of seeing
1: it. Yeah. And so one of the kind of where I go with that in the chapter is, I think, in a Rothbardian society where we had competing private courts, one of the things that the courts should do is apply some of these ideas from intelligent design theory to determine where property boundaries should be uh, in in cases where it's, you know, a bit subtle. So, you know, for instance, I think one of the examples I gave was if you plant a row of trees, uh, you know, if you maybe you leave them, you know, a metre apart so that you don't totally overwhelm the soil. But is that you know that meter of dirt in between, it's kind of technically unchanged. Is it still in a state of nature? Can someone else come and homestead it? Mm-hmm. And my answer is, mm-hmm. well, no, because you can see that there's been an intelligent choice to leave that empty. It's been left empty with purpose. Right, right. And so that in that sense, it has been homesteaded. Information has been imposed on that larger area and deliberately left some of it fallow with no tree planted. And a judge in a Rothbardian society should take note of that and say, no, that's not available for homesteading. You, it's trespassing if you try to take that. Right. And so that I, that even answers another. One thing I really struggled with, my dad's a big hiker. He really likes the idea of mm-hmm. being out you know, in the wilderness, out in, in the bush, as we would say, in Australia. And I thought, can there just never be a nature reserve? Is that just a thing that can't exist in a Rothbardian private property society because it's always able to be homesteaded? There's, you know, the problem we have now really right. is that the crown in Australia, the queen – effectively just says, no, 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 that bit of forest that's totally untouched, it's mine. No one's allowed to build anything there, deal with it. And, you know, in a Rothbardian society, you don't have that, so can we never have a nature reserve? And I kind of thought about it for a while and thought, well, no, you could, you could definitely set up a nature reserve. You just have to set it up in such a way that it's, it's very clear for the sake of the, you know, the courts who would have to argue over it that this has been left in, you know, pretty close to the state of nature yeah. on purpose. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a great example you might come up with is like Central Park in New York, Hyde Park in London. You know, if you took a particular square meter of Central Park, it might look an awful lot like it's in the state of nature.
0: Right. But taken as a
1: whole, the whole city around it, it's very clear that this area has been left to be a park and not to just be more high rise. That's been done on purpose. Right. Right. And that. That phrase
0: really is at the heart of idea. It was on purpose. It was yeah. designed. It you know there's a, there's intentionality involved. Yeah. And, exactly. And and that's the whole thing with human action. Like the phrase "human action." You know, mm. Mises talking about you know praxeology to to say it's it's not just bodily motions. Like if we're going to attribute intentionality and purpose to this mat this bag of cells blobbing around, then we say, oh, that's a human action. There's there's purpose involved. Yes, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so, I'm just saying these, these notions of like m- mere matter and motion, and then, or it's like the mind body problem. And all, so, a lot of this stuff, it, it does seem to come down to it's not just matter and energy, but information. And that, yeah. you know, like, like information implies the
1: existence of minds. Yeah. How do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, this is, you know, if you want a $2 word, it's the teleological argument for the existence of God. There is right. information in the right. universe, and it must come
0: from the mind, and that mind is God, in very, very short form. Well, sure. I mean, so that's where ultimately we're going. But I'm just saying, the mere to call something information, if there were no minds—not God's mind, but just in general—to even talk yeah. about information means there must be a mind in principle of capable of perceiving it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we covered a lot of material, a lot of uh, deep concepts in this episode. Um, this we're wrapping down the uh, the time we had allocated for it, um, do you, is there anything else you want to say as final words in terms of people who are, is this all in the one book or are these separate things you've written?
1: Uh, this is all in the one book. The book is pretty large. It's, uh, it's about 400 pages. Uh, so I kind of, it is pretty solid. I just, i put the warning out there to anyone who wants to get into it. I wrote it trying to write the book that I wished had been in the Bible College library. <laughs> so I didn't shy away from saying technical things. I didn't shy away from using Greek and Hebrew words, any of that kind of stuff. So it's it's readable if you don't have the theological background. You can get through it, but it's, you know, think of it as a kind of a book targeting people with at least an academic
0: bent. Okay, great. And so they, I'm just looking at it now. Is it just available at the link
1: you sent me, the Being Biblical one, or is it also a yeah. regular? You can get it on Amazon and Book Depository and all those things, but yeah, it's at my website. Oh, you can yeah, get it there too. at my website, beingbiblical.com. okay. I got a free okay. ebook there as well on the origin of the New Testament canon. So who chose the books of the Bible? That one's free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead and check those things out. Also, you get a discount if you pay with crypto because agorism. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Great. So, uh, folks, the book title is Taxation is Slavery, the Biblical Case for Libertarian Politics. My guest has been Nick Watts and all of the links, folks, for all this stuff is at BobMurphyShow.com slash 179. Uh, Fascinating discussion, Nick. Thanks so much for joining
1: us thank you uh you know your stuff your podcast stuff and things you've written have been hugely influential on me kind of getting through all this wrestling so hugely appreciative a big fan thank you for all the hard work you put in over many years
0: oh i i appreciate that thanks this this book sounds great i'm sure you'll get a lot of interest in it you've just experienced
1: another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.